0: What a glorious song, amen? What a beautiful, happy Sabbath. I want to welcome everyone, especially our guests our visitors. Hopefully, you'll enjoy worship with us today, and hopefully the Lord will bless us. My message today is titled, Sourful, Yet Always Rejoicing. But before we study any word of God, let us open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for the freedom and the liberty to come before you today, for the opportunity to enjoy your Sabbath, the gift of this Bible, of these truths. And Lord, we come before you humbly today. We ask you for forgiveness. We ask you for mercy. Most of all, we ask you for leading. So Lord, as we open your word today, as we open the counsels of your Apostle Paul, we ask you to please send your Holy Spirit to be with us. Send your words down to my mouth so I can speak the truths that you need us to hear so that we can be lifted up and led in your path. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Today's scripture reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, How do those two concepts go together? They seem like a contradiction, don't they? In fact, they are. Especially when we look at them through the lens of our worldly ideas, our worldly concepts. We say they can't go together, they can't coexist. But we're going to learn today that they absolutely can. The Bible is full of these seemingly contradictive concepts. But when we look through them through the eyes of Jesus, when we look through them through the eyes of God, they are not contradictions at all. They actually display and demonstrate the power of God, the ability to twist and turn and scramble up the way we look at things and help us to look at things the way we should look at them. I've I've preached from this very pulpit on these topics before. I preached a sermon titled, Patiently Persistent. Those two contradict each other. Jesus said we should be patiently persistent. What about strong but weak? The Bible's full of that concept. How about loving our enemies? Once again, a seemingly contradiction. And actually one of the most hard lessons in the Bible. So how can we rejoice while being sorrowful? And why would we want to? Sorrow means sadness, means suffering, means tears. While rejoicing means to celebrate, to be joyous, to have fun. Again, these two don't seem to coexist. We have often heard the message that suffering and hardship grows character, haven't we? How many times have did your parents tell you that when you were growing up? And how many times did you tell your children that? Oh, things are tough? It's for your own good. It didn't seem like it, did it? That we learn from our bad experiences or our hardships or our difficulties more than we do when things are fun and easy. That our characters are forged in the fires of trial and tribulation. Friends, this is not a secular lesson. But rather, this is weaved throughout the Bible. This is a biblical lesson. This is a lesson from God. We will be strengthened by our trials. We will be strengthened by our tribulations. We will be strengthened by our sorrow. I preached at Fremont this morning. And the common theme in their prayer request this morning were things that were going on out in the secular world, whether it was financial, economic, political. And the theme was, people weren't going to worry about it. They were asking the Lord to help them not to worry about it, not to get twisted up, not to focus on those things. It goes right to the heart of today's lesson. When times are sorrowful, the Apostle Paul is telling us we should rejoice we should rejoice during those times. A little trivia question. Who knows what the shortest verse is in the Bible? Jesus wept. John chapter 11, verse 35. Yes, it is in English. Turn me to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 16. My customary little lesson in Greek for the sabbath. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16. In the King James it says rejoice evermore. In the New King James it says rejoice always. In the Greek that verse is actually shorter than Jesus wept. It wasn't meant to be a trick question. There's a lesson here. In fact, in reality these two two two-word verses actually complement each other. If we took a little literary creativity or editorial freedom and we put those two verses together, we would say, because Jesus wept, we can rejoice evermore. That's what Paul's telling us. Because Jesus wept, because we wept in sorrow for the loss of Jesus' life, we can rejoice evermore. It goes to the heart of what Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Christ died that we might live. He became poor so that we could be eternally rich. When Christ rose from the dead, and he met the women returning from the empty tomb. He greeted them with two more words. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 9, he says, all hail. Now we often hear the words hail when we think about Rome, don't we? And the way that the Romans greeted each other. We see it in movies. We see it in literature depicting in historical times. Hail was one of their favorite terms. So we think of this as a customary greeting at that time, and it was. But the actual Greek word used was the same word as rejoice. Surely Jesus' victory over sin and death provided all of the reasons, the greatest reasons for the world to rejoice. Friends, he wasn't greeting his followers with a normal greeting. He wasn't saying hello. He was saying rejoice. He's saying, I overcame for you. He said, rejoice in your sorrow. Now, was their sorrow present that day? Absolutely. They had seen their Lord crucified. A horrible death. They had lost their rock, their anchor. And they had been separated with him now for three days. And they knew not what they were going to do. His first contact with his followers was a call to rejoice. It wasn't a hello. It wasn't a casual, how are you doing? Jesus came out and he said, rejoice. Lift up your sorrow and rejoice. His first words were a call to rejoice in his victory, his overcoming of sorrow. And when we think of rejoicing in sorrow, we often think of laughing, laughing or weeping, don't we? Rejoicing means we're happy, we're going to celebrate, we're going to have fun, which equates to laughing. And weeping re- refers to tears, sorrow. Sadness. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the continence of the heart it is made better. Solomon's saying, Sadness and sorrow will strengthen you more than the laughter, the fun. The fun will be fleeting. He goes even deeper. To explain to us that the fun can be dangerous. When we think of sorrow, we often think of sadness or weeping. When we think of rejoicing, like I said, we think of happiness, of time of celebration. People like to be made laugh, don't we? We, we like to be made to laugh. We like to have fun. We love to be entertained. Some of the most popular people in this world are professional comics, comedic actors. They make a tremendous living telling jokes, slapstick comedy, humor. Even in the Christian ministry, it seems that those preachers and teachers who can keep their audiences laughing, laughing are often the most popular, especially amongst young people. No doubt humor has its place. But it needs to be kept in perspective. I'm not telling you today that you should not laugh or not have a good time. In fact, as Christians, we should be the happiest people in the world. Amen? But happiness and joy should not translate to unabashed humor. It should not cross over into the darker sides of humor. We must guard the state of our hearts. We must be cautious of our motives. Why are we having fun? Why are we laughing? As God's people, we should not be seeking enjoyment or entertainment at the expense of other people. How often do we find things funny, but at the expense of somebody else's suffering or pain or misfortune? More often than we care to admit. Amen? The Bible tells us once again that Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived. Solomon had everything, didn't he? He had money. He had power. Everybody kneeled at his throne. They bowed at his word. Yet Solomon himself tried humor to entertain the people, to promote laughter and merriment. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. It is said of laughter, and it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? Solomon saying, Careful with the humor, careful with the laughter. Often what is regarded as lighthearted humor does more harm than good. All too often today, comedy, humor relies on the profane, the dark, the bawdy. Especially in today's pop culture of movies, radio, and the internet. Friends, the Bible speaks very clearly to this topic. The Apostle Paul offers us counsel in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not be once named among you. He doesn't say tamper it down. (laughs) He doesn't say only do it once in a while. He says, let it not once be named among you. Then he continues, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting. Those are harsh words, but they're also direct words is it not significant that we never read in the bible and i challenge you to go to your bibles today and find me a passage where it says jesus was laughing while you're at it find one where one of the apostles are laughing but we read often of jesus weeping do we not in fact, Jesus himself is very clear on this topic in Luke chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus says, Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Jesus says, Be careful with the laughing, be careful with the idle humor. Be careful, beware. Similarly, the Apostle James says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning in your joy to heaviness. Friends, this isn't one verse taken out of context in the New Testament. This theme is consistent across every gospel writer. So what does the world need from God's church? What does the world need from God's church? This is a great, great topic. And I heard Three Angels' message. I heard doctrine, and the world does need those. But Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is going to go into a much deeper concept, a much more important feature that God's church needs. I'm not short-selling doctrine. You all know, you've heard me preach prophecy seminars. You know I believe in doctrine. Paul's not talking about doctrine in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Friends, my heart aches when I see or hear church services that now look like reality TV. Or they look like rock and roll concerts. Where the world has invaded God's church, like the Roman circus trying to entertain and keep people distracted. Where the church has been transformed into a stage to make people feel lighthearted and playful. While all of this is happening, while the world is invading God's church, friends, people are dying all around us from cancer, from disease. Marriages are disintegrating and society is falling apart. The world is on fire. Yet much of the Christian church is focused on entertainment rather than ministry. Now I'm sure some of you are going to say, But Dan, are you telling us that the church needs to be dark, gloomy, sullen? Are you saying that the church should be an uninspiring dungeon of gloom? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the world needs to see and feel that God's church has an unshakable joy in Jesus. The world needs to see that unshakable joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow. The world needs to see God's church as sorrowful but always rejoicing. They need to see that God's people are not playing games. They need to know that God's people are not using religion simply for worldly gain. The world needs the goodness and majesty of God. The world needs a crucified and risen Savior offering them love and mercy. They need that Savior. They need to see that Savior with his outstretched arms covered with the blood of sacrifice. Now, does the world need to see Christians as happy in order to know the truth of our faith and be drawn to the great Savior? Absolutely. But they need to see that our happiness, our rejoicing is rooted in the invincible work of Christ. They need to see this in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sadness a sorrow probably deeper than they have ever known that we live every day. They need to see sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What should God's church look like? Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience and afflictions and necessities and distresses. So Paul's saying, I'm going to help you to remove obstacles. I'm going to help you. I'm going to show you how to remove offenses to God's message, to God's gospel. Paul's saying, I'm going to help you to remove barriers to our mission. To overcome that which we have allowed to come into the church and cloud our message. Paul is counseling the church to heed his advice. Not to wander off course. Not to allow worldly obstacles to distract us. And most of all, to know in our hearts whom we represent. Paul is using the language of a seeker. Seeking lost souls. An apostle of Christ, driven solely by love to save souls. This is Paul's mission. This is Paul's driving force. This is all that Paul cares for. In fact, we read in Romans where Paul offers to give up his own salvation so that you will be saved. Now think about that level of love and sacrifice. Paul is willing to give up his access to eternal life so we can be saved. Does the Christian church have that in its midst today? So Paul gives us a blueprint for what God's church should look like in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What kind of characteristics should God's church have? He describes the sufferings that the church must endure. He describes the character that the church must show. And he describes the paradoxes of living a Christian life. So I'm going to go back to verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 through 5. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience and afflictions in necessities and distresses, in stripes and imprisonments, in tumults, in labors and watchings and fastings. So how, in that passage, it doesn't sound very nice, does it? Paul's laying out, hey, the road's going to be rough. Things are going to be difficult. So how is Paul removing obstacles to the gospel? How is this lifting up the church's ministry? Paul's laying out, all these things are going to happen to the church. Come on in and join us. Wait a minute. How does that work? Wouldn't this just push people away rather than winning them? Well, taken out of context, we would think that. But Paul continues, verse 6 and 7. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Paul's saying we should take on the armor of God. We should take up the cause of truth. We should be preaching the Bible and the Bible only. We should be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ unabashedly, unashamedly, proudly. Paul's saying instead of getting frustrated and angry and resentful by all the afflictions that are going to come to the church, all the hardships, all the sorrow, Paul's saying by God's grace, The church will show kindness, patience, and love. That's what God's church is supposed to look like. The church's spirit should not be broken by the pain that is going to be exerted on it by outside forces. In the Holy Spirit, Paul said he found resources, and in turn the church has got resources to give and to not grumble. To accept God's plan and timing with patience. That's a hard one, isn't it? Things aren't happening to our schedule. They're not happening as fast as I want them to. Or they're not happening in the order that I want them to. Well, Lord, you've got to have this wrong. Because I know what's best. Easy. Friends, this is not just a story of Paul's victory. Paul has given us an example to the church. Let me continue. Verse 8. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Here Paul's describing the paradoxes facing the Christian church. The paradoxes of being a Christian The apparent contradictions. But most of all, Paul's issuing a caution, a warning to the church. He says, when you speak the truth in purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and love, some people will honor you, and some will dishonor you. Some will slander you, and some will praise you. And that dishonor and slander may come in the form of calling you an imposter, calling you fake, calling you a hypocrite. Remember, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus is saying, if everybody's singing your praises, you better wake up. You better look the other way. You better examine your message. You better examine your walk. If everybody's praising you, that's not good. Jesus says, easy. Paul's telling the church that a mixed reception, some honoring, some praising, some dishonoring, some slandering, is actually a good thing. Paul is saying you're probably most likely on message when you get a mixed response. So I want to go down through these two verses, through verse 9 and 10, and we're going to break them down a little bit deeper. Verse 9 starts off as unknown and yet well-known. Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying that Jesus' people will be as unknown, will be seen as unknown, yet they will be well-known. Paul saying, we are but a tiny movement, a remnant. Have you ever heard that word? Said in this church, you should hear that word quite often. Following a crucified and risen king. But though we are a tiny movement, we are known by God. And that is all that matters. That's what Paul's saying. Do not seek to be known to everybody, do not seek public notoriety. Seek to be known by God. Paul continues. As dying, and behold, we live. Paul's saying, yes, we die every day. We are crucified with Christ. Some of us are in prison. Some of us are killed. But we live because Christ is in our life now. And we do not fear death, as we know he will raise us from the dead. Friends, death is a very sorrowful experience. We all have experienced it. But we know Jesus can raise us from that. So we should not fear death. The Bible is clear. Death is but a sleep, a brief break. Paul continues, and behold, we live as chastened, not killed. Paul's saying, yes, we endure much persecution. He even goes one step farther, chasten. He says, God will chasten us, will correct us, will guide us, will correct course, sometimes painfully. But God has spared us until our work is done. We continue in verse 10. Today's scripture reading, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul saying, yes, we are sorrowful. We experience sadness. There are countless reasons for our hearts to break. Amen? But in them all, we do not cease to rejoice. God's people will always rejoice. This is one of the greatest paradoxes of the entire Christian life. In suffering and sorrow, we are to rejoice. We are to be the happiest. Paul continues, as poor yet making many rich. Paul's saying God's people will be poor in this world's wealth. But he also says God's people will not strive for worldly wealth. That's not what they will hunger for. Paul is saying we should strive to live to make others' lives rich in Jesus. That's the riches we should strive for. It's not about money. God doesn't need the money. What we view as money, God will use as pavement and sidewalk under our feet. Think about that. Verse 10 continues. As having nothing and yet possessing all things, we are to be seen as having nothing. The world will view God's people as poor, owning nothing, wanting That's how the world will view God's people. Friends, in fact, we are children of God. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. According to Paul, we are adopted to God's family. And we are left, we are bequeathed all he has to offer. All riches. Riches we cannot fathom. Paul tells the Christian church, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Notice Paul uses the word always. This is not a throwaway word. Paul is telling us we should always rejoice. He's not saying we should sometimes rejoice. He's not saying we should rejoice when times are good. He's not saying when you decide it's okay to rejoice, then you can rejoice. Paul specifically uses the word always, evermore. Paul is telling us that we can live our present lives in the light of our future lives. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The Apostle Paul also exhorts us in Philippians chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Peter tells us, loving Christ, we we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Friends, every Bible writer in the New Testament and in the Old says we should always rejoice in the Lord. Always. This isn't, again, one small verse that I dug out of the Bible. It's not a small concept. It's not an obscure idea. It's the heart of the gospel. The contrast between suffering and rejoicing is present throughout the Bible. But it's most glaring throughout the New Testament. Most often in the Bible, suffering and sorrow occurs first with the rejoicing coming afterwards. The Bible's teaching, you're going to have to have sorrow and sadness. You're going to have to have suffering. But the rejoicing is a promise. It will come. And we need to be trained to rejoice during those times. We need to transform. We need to allow Christ and the Holy Spirit to lead our hearts, to know, to accept, to by default rejoice at all times. In fact, Jesus himself, as well as the gospel writers, repeat and reinforce reinforce this concept throughout the Bible. Jesus himself actually indicates that suffering and sorrow are a surety. They are a precursor to rejoicing. And the first occurrence occurrence of this comparison, this appearing to be a contradiction, occurs in the closing verses of the Beatitudes. Turn me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. We all know the sermon, amen? Greatest sermon ever told. One chapter. I could preach on it for the rest of my life. And not cover it enough. Verse 11. Verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you faultfully for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Once again, we see this apparent contradiction in back-to-back verses. Notice Jesus uses the word revile. Revile is a very strong word, is it not? Friends, this is not a casual dislike. This is not, well, I don't really care for that person. I'm just going to avoid them. Revile. It means a deep hatred, a gut-wrenching animosity towards someone. Of course, we know what persecution means. Again, this is not a casual activity. It's not a passing feeling towards someone we just don't care for. You don't persecute someone because they annoy you. persecute someone is to make a concerted effort to punish someone because we hate them, we revile them, or we hate their beliefs. Jesus warns us what we are to expect if we take up his name. Hatred, ridicule, persecution, and even death. Notice that Jesus continues after these verses. The next thing he says is, you are to be the salt of the earth. You are to be the light of the world. Jesus is telling us that the world needs to taste the sharpness of the salt. We are meant to be a bitter taste in people's mouths. Think about that. That doesn't mean we're supposed to go out of our way to offend people. That means we are supposed to stand out and stand for truth, and that will be bitter in some people's mouths. But Jesus comes back with it. The world also needs to see... The brightness of his light. Now he's not suggesting he's going to reveal the brightness of his light to each individual person. He's saying that the world needs to see the brightness of his light in his church. If we are God's church, they will see the brightness of that light. The world needs to see an invincible, unconquerable joy in the midst of sorrow. Now, was Jesus just talking only about joy in the midst of good health? Was he talking about joy only during wealth and comfort? Or was he talking about joy only when people speak well of you? Now, why would that mean anything to the world? They already do that. Right? They speak well of those people when they're having good times. Of course, it's easy to rejoice when things are going well. Jesus was talking about an invincible joy in the midst of sorrow. Something the world does not have, yet it longs for. This is what Jesus came to give this sin-fallen world. A level of joy they cannot imagine. Friends, I think Jesus was the happiest man who ever lived. Yes, he was very sorrowful. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet Jesus was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The final passage in the New Testament that shows this contrast is when the sufferings of the saints are all past and Christ's return is to come. When the multitude sings in heaven, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the land has come. Of course, this is in the book of Revelation. At the end of the story... And it continues, in that great day, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, friends, if there's tears in their eyes, that clearly indicates there's sorrow in God's people. Amen? Yet the Lord is telling us that all of our sorrow was for a purpose. All of our sadness was not for naught. It was not a waste. It was meant for. To help us grow, to lift us up, to strengthen us. All of our sorrow will lead to that glorious moment. That great day when the sky opens up, when the clouds unfold like a scroll. And when our Lord comes on the clouds with all of his angels, that is when you will say the sorrow is worth it. The sadness was worth it. You will truly rejoice. And you should be rejoicing at that promise long before that day comes. And all the redeemed will indeed rejoice evermore. Friends, as I come to a close, I want to leave you with a thought. I want to draw a picture for you. Imagine yourself chatting with someone you care about very much. And they're not a believer. I'm sure everyone else in here can imagine that. They've experienced it. We've experienced it. And we will continue to experience it. You have shared the gospel with this person before. They have nodded and agreed. And they've told you that they would think about it. They would reflect on it. They may have told you they would go to their Bibles. They may have said, yes, I'll come to Bible study. Many of them may not. Yet many, many of them continue to be non-committal. Perhaps some just are disinterested right from the beginning. And even some may be immediately rejected, rejecting you. Rejecting you out of hand. Yet God, imagine this, God gives you the grace one more time to plead with them. God provides you one more divine appointment with that person. And with tears, you say, my heart yearns for you to believe and be a follower of Jesus with me. You say, I desperately want you to have eternal life. I want us to be together forever with Christ. I long for you to share the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven. And that Jesus loves you with all of his heart. And you continue, you say, please, I can hardly bear the thought of losing you. This thought keeps me awake at night. I do not want to lose you. friends, I ask you this. Isn't that what the world needs today in God's church? Isn't that what God people need to be like? Not just to issue invitations to fun and games. Not just an invitation to the good times. Not just a painful expression of worry or concern in a passing moment. The world needs to see the pain and the joy coming together like they have never seen before. They need to see the miracle of grace, the power of transformation, the power of forgiveness. They have never been loved like this before. They have never seen the never ending joy of Jesus in the middle of sorrow. They need to see the love of Christ in his people, in his church. They need to see rejoicing in the face of sorrow. The world needs to see unconditional joy in the face of pain and persecution. In spite of pain and persecution. They need to see God's people the happiest when they're in sorrow. Friends, as God's people, we must show the world that there is victory. But it's only in Jesus. We must proclaim his name far and wide. We are to be as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Friends, I ask you today, I pray, I ask you today to reflect on this scripture, on this lesson from Paul. Reflect, is our church like that? And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about God's church. Is that what God's church looks like? And is that what we look like? And if it's not, I pray that you pray and get on your knees to the Lord and ask Him to help you to get on that path, to correct your course if needed. Most of all, I pray for you all to study and reflect on this lesson. It's a powerful lesson. Paul laid out what the Christian church should look like in a chapter, he gave us all the characteristics. And also all the challenges that we are to face. But he did so in a loving, guiding, teaching manner. Just as Christ did. Will you all please commit to reflecting on this message from Paul. Amen. God bless. Please join me in singing the closing hymn. Number 430. Joy by and by.